Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Welcome to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Isaac. Me llamo Cristobal Rafael Estrada Cusmioman. But you can call me Chris. <laughs> and <laughs> you're listening to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. It's a show about all things fermented with a focus on beer. That's right. So a couple of announcements. We first want to announce that Chris is going to be playing as a musician with his... Um, with it's Mc- McLean, <laughs> McLean Sullivan, right? McLean Sullivan. McLean and the Ailers. So it's a jazz quartet. They they sound really awesome. So they're going to be playing at the NYC Craft Beer Festival Summer Jazz Edition. That is on July 20th. So it's coming up fast, Saturday, July 20th at Webster Hall in Manhattan. Tickets are available at nyccraftbeerfest.com. And Chris will also be pouring 508. Actually, I'm going to be pouring. You'll be pouring. 508 Gaster Brewery while Chris plays. So if, you, um, if you're if you in town on July 20th and you're looking for something fun to do, um, NYC Craft Beer Festival will be fun. So that's NYC craftbeerfest.com uh, the only other announcement is that we have brought the foment about it website up to date so by we we mean mary <laughs> thank you mary and uh, i'm going to be focusing more on that so adding recipes and interviews and um, fermentation links around the web that kind of stuff so it's fermentaboutit.com you can also follow us on twitter at foment about it we have a facebook page foment about it as well that's right. You know, the, this is our 33rd episode, so thanks for listening. Uh, you know those TV shows when, the, you know, after they get deep into the season, they play clips from the rest of the season? This is not that show. We're going to play some interviews that uh, we have not aired before uh, that, we, that we picked up at the Craft Brewers Conference, uh, and the first of which uh, has to do with flavor and intent, and is by our friend Randy Mosher. We had a chance to talk to him. Uh, down there. It's an awesome interview. I hope you enjoy it. Immediately following that, we will have um, an interview uh, with Flavor Active. I'll introduce that when, when we get there. How about this? 2013, we are here sitting with Randy Mosher, our freaking hero. Who has, you know, and, and that's... Radical Brewing is my favorite homebrew book of all time. So cool. Which I've already mentioned to you. And also, Tasting Beer, excellent Thanks. guide for everybody who's really wants to delve more into thinking about what they're tasting Thanks. and learning. Um, so you mentioned that you have a new homebrew book. I have, have a new, a new, have a new homebrew book coming out this fall. Uh, it's going to be called Mastering Homebrew. You know, when you do a homebrew book, you're always thinking about there's other homebrew books out there. You know, I don't want to step on Ray Daniels' books or Ray Palmer or um, Don Palmer's books. Or, you know, so it's always like, well, what can I do to be different? And, uh, you know, one of my big passions, well... The big passion is like, what's this taste like? What's this flavor thing? You know, and helping people understand how to uh, have the confidence to build a recipe from the inside out, from a flavor point of view out, rather than a styles point of view in. You know, we all, like in all of our daily life, we do so many things out of habit. Like, oh yeah, let's put some pale ale malt, and eh, I guess we got to throw some crystal in there. You know, that's a standard homebrew recipe and a lot of craft brew recipes. And why do we do that? I don't know. We just do, because this is habit. 
but like when you really want to be like when you really want to make something great you have to be intentional about every little thing it's like what's this in here what's that crystal really doing for me you know is it do you really like that burnt marshmallow flavor or that super heavy caramelized raisin thing do you want that in your beer or is it just like what's up what you put up with or will just sort of you know so so it's necessary by the standard it's just me think about what you're doing so the biggest chapter in the book is about ingredients so i have things like a malt color wheel points out a couple of interesting things. When you look at all the types of malts that are available to you, and you look at them in a, in a sort of a continuum, you realize that there's no malts between about 100 and about 200, or 250, right? And that's a zone, and there's some caramel malts in there, but, but because that's a zone because that malt is so nasty and ashy and cigarette-like that it's unusable, yep. right? And so the next conclusion you draw, then you look at that, like, what's that malt that's like, the first one that pops up back on the high end of the scale is chocolate malt, right? And people always bring me beers, of course, you know, because it's Randy Moser, Mr. Big Beer Guy. is like, oh, taste my beer. I hate this beer. What's wrong with this beer? And, I, you know, I, quite often I taste them. It's like, do you put a lot of chocolate malt in it? And I go, oh, yeah, I love chocolate malt. It's like, no, you love the name chocolate malt. But chocolate malt should really be called Old Stale Diner Coffee Malt. <laughs> Because that's what chocolate malt tastes like. And the more roasting, the higher you go in roastiness, the mellower and softer and more chocolatey it becomes. But that chocolate malt is pretty harsh. And people, because of the name, they just, like, don't, they assume that it has certain qualities and they don't even question it. So I want people to question it. So I took the world of hops. I got 70 varieties of hops in there, which is only, not even half of the world of the hops you can get. I mean, there's like, there were 30 or more hops at the show today that I never saw before. And, and that's really fun and interesting. But So to take all those varieties of hops and put them into groups by what their flavors actually are, make some arbitrary categories that I gave funny names like Britannic and Styriac and Satsi and, you know, whatever. And, and then within each group, I rank them in the order of, like, in the, in the uh, uh, what's it called, um, noblesse category Hollertau's at the top it's the most minty and herbal and at the bottom is one that's a little more a lot more fruity and spicy and yet there's a continuum so if you're out of liberty oh yeah we don't have liberty but here's this one that's right next to it and these days of course you can't get the hop you want so substitution is a big deal so just trying to give and then also like giving people tools to um, build recipes like thinking about say a malt beer in terms of its functional blocks Right, like like a chef would do, break it down, right? And you layer things in. You have a number of different components. So in a beer, you might have a uh, a base malt block. You all well, you always have a base malt block. But what's that malt? What's that block? You know, what's it actually doing? You want to you want a pills pills malt. If you want a little more of an edge, you go with a, a pale malt. If you want a really round, rich, dark type malt character, you go with a, a Vienna or a, uh, a, a mild ale malt. That, so there's your basement. Then color malt. Anywhere from Munich all the way down to melanoidin, biscuit. You want sharp and toasty or, and slightly roasty, or do you want really malt, like uh, toasted, like cookie-like, cake-like? Uh, and then you look at caramel malts. What are the flavors you can get? It starts out sort of light caramel, honeyish sort of notes, moves pretty quickly into raisiny prunes, and then you get into those darker 60 love, 80 love. You get into the, like the the burnt caramelized sugar, toasted marshmallow flavors, and then even darker, you know, into those. What do you want? 
and you might mix. So your caramel malt block might be three or four caramel malts to get a, a balance of those flavors, not just one thing. Right. So it's a way of kind of thinking about your recipe systematically, like in terms of like the broad categories of flavors that you might want to bring to a recipe, and then uh, that, it makes it more manageable. It's like, oh, my base malt, my, and then adjuncts too. You know, what do you want out of an adjunct? You want to lighten the body? Yep. Use some sugar. Do you want to add creaminess? Maybe oats or wheat or flaked rye or unmalted barley or whatever it is. So it's just a matter of kind of really encouraging people to think about all the possibilities with every beer. Even if it's like totally Reinheitsgebot, completely by the book beer, just understand what are the possibilities that you have to work with and intentionally make a beer that's what you want instead of what you just sort of think, what you always do. You know, so that's the thing. It's just like think about it, pay attention to it, and learn. And, you know, that's where that's how you grow and how you really develop your skills as an artist is like having to understand every little thing and that everything you do is totally under your control and not ever done out of habit and that's like you know my big mission in life think about it (laughs) you know so so that's where i'm at you know and if we can ever if my publisher never and i can ever stop arguing about what the cover looks like this book will come out i like so. your functional title i would i, would, I love your book. randy mosher's big freaking homebrew book <laughs> I love it. but that's not the real title well, but it look, should be maybe yeah. but that well but it's I, not because publishers you know they're move. difficult they they yeah. their business is like they're not so much fun as this business so yeah yeah I've been I've been blessed with the, the free reign on what to name my beers at 508, yada yada. And, like we're a small little thing, and I'm not really dealing so much with the national scale. And things would be different if it wasn't like, but and get pretty liberal with my names. And, and uh, that's something. You know, you know, I think stream of consciousness has a great place. You know, I, I and, and, and things agree. things have to resonate. They have to feel right. Yeah. You know, I mean that we were talking about this earlier today. That Herodotus, the great Greek historian wrote about the ancient Persians and said every time they made a business decision they made it twice they would get drunk and have a meeting and make a decision and then they would evaluate that same decision once they got sober you know so it's just like so it's just like that it's that kind of thing you want like both halves of your brain to be fully engaged (laughs) does it make sense to your head or does it make sense to your heart you know, kind of to like what the feel of it is. That's really important. You know? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Randy. And it was great talking to you. Good luck with your advocates of the way you did it. All right, I'm here at the Craft Brewers Conference in Washington, D.C., and I have just sat down with Richard Borton of Flavor Act. Active. Flavor Active. And um, so we've talked about off flavors on the radio show before. I teach off-flavor classes and you guys have you're relatively new you said you've been around yeah we, we've been around about 15 years but uh, we're very well known by the global brewers as I would call it the you know, Carlsbergs and uh, Heineken's and people like that and also in the US but we knew we didn't have the right product for the craft brewing world and everyone who's involved in it not just for the people who are making the beer but people who are serving the beer in, in the pubs and right through to the home brewers and, and, and the enthusiasts. We're finding more and more pull for people who want to learn about both positive flavors and when, when the flavor's not right, what is it? What, what might have caused it? Um, so that's why we went ahead and produced these uh, small, small kits. And we put together uh, the first kit, which has just got five flavors in it. In this case, uh, you've got the, on, on the pack here, uh, you've got the 
icons for each of the flavors, which makes it easy to remember. Obviously, banana for isoamyl acetate, diacetyl is represented by butter, metallic, which is ferrous sulfate, represented by the uh, magnet there, and papery, which is um, like a, when the beer is oxidized, mm -hmm, right. uh, stale, uh, that's like a pile of damp paper, really. And then butyric, which often makes people smile, is the, is, is, is the baby sick one. So each of these capsules, there's one capsule of each in this kit. And one capsule, when you dispense the powder into, uh, should we say, a, a, a small pitcher with about a couple of pints in it, mm -hmm. that will then serve out to 15 tasters. Um, so really, one capsule will enable a small homebrew club or whether to like learn a beer, learn a beer enthusiast club. yeah yeah beer, beer beer enthusiast club to learn those particular flavors mm -hmm. and uh, the, the, the flavors are very stable um, they'll you know last a couple of years you can you can keep them anyway you don't have to refrigerate them or anything it's oh, great yeah this is um, very so unique. it's easy to use and then tell us about your next kit up well then when you've got your when you've got your head around those flavors then you know there are more demanding ones you can go on to and um, but you know some people might want to start with 10 for uh, straight away mm -hmm. so in this case we've got um, a captain we've got light stroke which a lot of people know about when you're on uh, beer in uh, clear clear glass bottles you mm -hmm. know uh, that I can suffer from it and you've got sour you've got sulfury you've got DMS which is sweet sweet corn um, and so on and then finally you know from the enthusiast kit up to uh, the professional where you have two two packs of 10 and now you can see some new new icons like the green apple for our acid aldehyde which picks up grainy which is uh, and not all of these are um, negative characters some of them are quite you know quite desirable characters for example isoamyl acetate you know, a lot of people like that mm -hmm. within particularly within certain the, styles of beer. yeah exactly yeah so tell us where people can get if they're interested in doing their own um palette training you know sensory kit yeah. at home where can they get your kits well you can buy them on online at flavoractive.com okay um and uh we're shipping them pretty much all all over the world i mean we're a business that's based in the uk but it's only two or three percent of our sales is actually in the uk mm -hmm. we're, we're all over the world we're in 190 countries um but this is our first real entry into the craft world and so far it's been very exciting Good. oh yeah i think these are wonderful i mean they're they're they, you know it's very appealing visually appealing it seems like it's easy to use and affordable so you said for like well it, yeah club. for the for the homebrewing club we started with the five flavor pack it's 75 bucks uh, so the 75 bucks then divides into 15, 15. bucks per, per capsule and each capsule will serve around 15, 15. tasters yeah. so you, you're looking at about a one one dollar per per flavor per taster and very affordable also for the craft brewer yeah, yeah no matter how small you are even or the restaurant to train their you know restaurant bar to train their staff on exactly flavors. i mean a few of the people here this morning are running uh, re re restaurant chains and they, they've come along and said that's it yeah. you, you've you know You've got it. And then if people want to buy more in future of a certain flavor, they don't always have to buy the range. They can mm -hmm. buy a multiple of the same flavor then. Okay, cool. So, so, thank you. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me. So, please check out flavoractive.com. Is that correct? Correct, yes, it is. Um, to check out these um, sensory kits. And I think it's a great concept, and I look forward to trying them. Thank, thank you. you very much.
All right, so we're going to add all of those links to our website later tonight. And um, just as a recap, that was Randy Mosher, author of Radical Brewing, Recipes, Tales, and World-Altering Meditations in a Glass, as well as Tasting Beer, an insider's guide to the world's greatest drink. Both his books are available on Amazon.com as well as the Brewers Association. We'll have links to those. I highly recommend recommend. both of them. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So we're we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with um, Brewers Art. That's right. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com Welcome back to Men About It. We just heard from Randy Mosher and Richard Horton of Flavor Active. And up next, we are going to talk to, about, uh, you know, implementing some of these uh, flavor intents and, and practices, uh, starting with Stephen Fraser of The Brewer's Art. All right, so Chris and I are here at the Craft Brewers Conference 2013 in Washington, D.C. We're here with Stephen Fraser of The Brewer's Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Stephen. Hello. And Chris and I have, um, they're pouring your beer, the can, cans of Resurrection, and then bottles of the Green Peppercorn Triple. So Chris and I have one of each, and we would love to ask you about your Green Peppercorn Triple. What, how long have you guys have been brewing this beer? Uh, at this point, I think probably close to 10 years. Uh, we first bottled it, I think, in 2007 um, in Cork and Cage 750s. So. Uh, but we've been making it at least once a year at the pub, probably since 2003, I would guess. And this, so I, I first had this several years ago. We don't get this in New York City, or no, maybe we do now. Nope, not no, no, we don't. That's what I thought. It'll so be at a savor, I think. Okay, awesome. So it's a special treat. But I remember when I first had this, I was really impressed with it. Um, I think it's absolutely lovely. What was the inspiration from using green peppercorn triple? Well, we wanted something, uh, we've never been a big fan of pepper beers and how people use pepper in beers for the most part, but we, we like the sort of complimentary little spicy zing that you get along with the high alcohol content, because that's almost, uh, it's like a 9.5% beer. So we wanted to get a little bit of pepper character in there without it being overwhelming. So, uh, you know, we just took a little different approach, and it's essentially like a dry hopping process. Once that beer is finished primary fermentation and has been filtered, we put the peppercorns, fresh green Madagascar peppercorns, in a conditioning tank, and we allow the alcohol to extract the oils. So we're not using heat to break down the cell wall to release the piperine. 
And the interesting thing about it is that the reason we use fresh rather than dried is because all the interesting compounds are in the skin of the green peppercorns. There are actually a lot of compounds that are shared in common with hops, beta-pinene, caryophylline, all sorts of things that you find in hop essential oils you can also find in the skins of green peppercorn. So if you dry them, you lose that. Do you grind them or crush them at all? No, they come in cans and brine, so you want to rinse the brine off of them. But you can do this. You can let the alcohol do the extraction for anything else. We brew another beer where we use thyme to finish it, and it's the same thing. And thyme's in the mint family, so you get a different character from the thyme by using alcohol at low temperature to extract the oils than you would get by throwing it in the kettle. Awesome. And, and the thyme, that you, is that fresh or do you use dry? We use, we use fresh thyme, fresh we use fresh rosemary, um, you know, and you just get, it's, actually I misspoke, it's rosemary is what we've got in the beer that's up on tap right now up at, up at the shop, so if you swing through Baltimore, stop and try that one too. Like a must. <laughs> and now you also do the exact same method. Yeah, it's, you know, it's basically, uh, it's just, a, it's like, the same way you would make a vinegar or something like that, you know, if you're doing an herb-infused vinegar, and our idea is just to do it subtly and at low temperature. So the pepper is noticeable, a little bit on the nose in this, but mostly it's just adds a little complexity to the alcohol finish of the beer. Yeah, and it's very smooth. I think it's a nice balance. Thanks. Uh, um, <laughs> so any tips? Do you have, like, a... Would you recommend... So if homebrewers would, would want to try the same exact thing, kind of... Um, dry hopping with these spices and herbs. Would you recommend, like, is there a certain percentage of alcohol that you think works better? I mean, you've been mentioning higher alcohol beers. I have a feeling that it probably has more to do, you know, at higher alcohol, you've got a shorter contact time, but I think eventually, you know, you can can do it. So you're kind of making, like, tinctures. Right, right. And uh, is there a time, a general time frame for that, for that, for that contact time? Uh, or do you, you know, taste for, it? Do you we're, keep dipping and tasting to, to, to like... We're brewing 10 hectoliter batches, so roughly, you know, eight barrels. And uh, for the amount of peppercorns that we're using, I mean, you have to adjust to your own taste what you want. But we don't see much difference after four days. Like, you don't, you, you neither gain nor lose. And I think that probably shorter, as short a contact time as you can use, because you might start to extract stuff that isn't going to be as pleasant. Right. Maybe get some more astringency or something if you leave it in too long. So do it until it tastes good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us and cheers. Sure. Cheers. All right. We have our last interview next. It's with Jim Crooks, aka Sour Jim. He's the master blender for Barrel Works, uh, which is part of the Firestone Walker Brewery. Here we go. All right, so I am here at the Black Squirrel in um, D- Washington, D.C. for CBC 2013, and I am talking to... Jim Crooks, Firestone Walker Brewing Company, and now Pearl Works. And you're head of the Sour Program. I'm the blending master for the Sour Program. That's kicking off right now in 2013. For, uh, for the next year, we'll be putting beer in kegs, possibly... 2014 putting them in bottles but right now we went from having about 16 barrels in the beginning of 2012 to now having 430 barrels filled barrels oak barrels of beer amazing and i'm drinking your berliner vice so tell me about that beer that's right that's one of the most fortuitous beers i think i've ever fallen upon making we were uh, fooling around with the idea of making berliner vice and 
uh, had an idea of uh, using a, a wort stream that's uh, currently made up in Paso Robles for our Hefeweizen. Uh, our Hefeweizen right now is only made um, in for Paso and selected counts. It's uh, probably coming out here in the next few few months, I think, years under the Firestone label. But the wort stream itself is, uh, is really nice. It's a uh, half wheat, malted wheat, and really light IBUs, 14 IBU, uh, about, I think it's a 12 Play-Doh beer. So ultimately the beer is uh, about a 5% alcohol beer. Uh, I thought that would be a great wort stream for our Blinderweizen just because we wanted to do uh, something with lactobacillus, and lactobacillus has an issue with bitterness. Yep. So we're thinking something below 10 IBUs are right on the cusp, and I wanted to bring the um, original gravity down to something more like 10 or 8 if I could get it down there. The yeast for it is actually a fortuitous thing, too. It was sent to me um, by a, a yeast bank, and it was claiming to be the, the strain of uh, yeast isolated from the Dreyfontaine. So what came into us, I, I started using it in the lab and found that it was taking the the OG of the beer down from 10, 10 Play-Doh down to maybe 3 Play-Doh in a matter of a few days. And then the pH of that was dropping also in, in terms of, of days from 5, 5.2 down to 3.5. So super aggressive acidic. Uh, I put it under the... I was really curious after I saw what it was doing with the acid, so I put it under a... Um, put it on a plate in our lab, micro lab, and then put it under a microscope and found out that it was a mixed culture of both what looked like to be Saccharomyces or a smaller um, cell size, possibly Pretanomyces, and a mixed culture with lactobacillus rods. Interesting. And you're primary fermenting with that. Yeah, it's a primary fermenter. So um, we'll grow this culture up in the lab. Um, watch it closely as far as pH and OG, make sure it's doing what we expect it to do, and then pitch it and do the, the primary fermentation takes about four days at this point, and um, no acid production really, so we're taking the pH down from 5.2 uh, five down to about 4.1 with the, the original uh, fermentation, the primary, and then we just bung up the tank and let it sit there, and the lactobacillus kind of takes over and starts bringing down the pH um, within about a couple days. And this is a larger volume, of course, so we're actually seeing a, a drop in pH about um, you know, one-tenth a day from four, maybe 4.1 four down to about 3.5. It takes about a week. Um, it's also a gas producer, so if you bung the tank up, you're going to see pressure building, so you have to make sure you're, oh, you're yeah. looking at that. So what are the most striking things about this? I mean, it's an absolutely lovely beer, but one of the most striking things is it's rounded for a real enterprise. It has a good balance. Yeah. I attribute that more to the, the strain of yeast. Um, it's not offering up, a, it's not taking the, the sugars completely out of the beer, as a lot of Berliner Weissens you'll find are really, really dry and puckering. Um, I left a little bit of sugar, so I started with a little bit higher OG than most Berliner Weissens that are... And what was your OG? On this, on this beer, it was uh, 10, 10. And then I think that FG was right around 3.4 um, or three, maybe 3.7. But that also leaves a little residual sugar for the lactobacillus to do its, yeah, its business. And what ended up happening uh, as far as the ABV was right in the cusp of 3.4, which is on the high side of a lot of Berliner Weissens. So as I move forward and brew this more often, I think this is the first, actually the first time we've ever done this. So if we brew more often, I'm going to be lowering the OG down to about eight, hopefully it ferments a little bit drier, but um, 
I don't want to. I, I want it to be round. I mean, the idea yeah. is to leave a little bit. It, people have told me that they like this this beer because it does have a balance to yeah. it. Absolutely. So tell me about your lambic. Oh, the lambic. Uh, the lambic started out as a um, as a barrel aged beer, uh, primarily just going to be using our spent oak union barrels. So using something that we've already done a fermentation in, multiple fermentations in, so hopefully the oak flavors have kind of been diminished a little bit. And that's American oak, medium toast, American oak barrel. Neutral for for us, uh, maybe 40 uses for the double barrel fermentations, primary. Uh, so we did those, and we racked our, our beer. The beer base beer for most, most of that is used... Um, from Solus, Sol, the Solus production, which is a summer ale for us. It's about a 4.8% beer. Uh, definitely has a lot of wheat malt in it as well. Um, the ABV of that, uh, sorry, the, the IBUs of that is also pretty low. Um, not as low as as the, the Berliner Weissen, but I think the IBUs are roughly around 15 to 17. Uh, so we'd rack uh, the Solus into barrels, and then I looked into some fruit to use for this. I wanted to do something that was indigenous to the Slow County. We have a great um, a great uh, company in Slow called Linz and they've been they have a farm and a restaurant and for years they're kind of like ingrained into the culture when I was going to school there. And they were making a pie called a lullaby using a lullaby and it was very famous to them and they've been sending it world you know worldwide nationwide for a long time. Um, through my con- connections at Cal Poly, I was able to get hold of about uh, 400 pounds of this fruit a few years ago, and it just seemed like the right thing to do after tasting the fruit. It's a, it's a, a lullaby is a mix of a Marion berry and a raspberry. It's a hybrid, um, grown northly, mostly in the Northwest. So after tasting it, it, it had a really nice aroma, um, that of like a raspberry, but the, of tartness of something like a, a really green berry. Uh, we so we got these these berries in from um, the, from the farmer and it was a uh, it's called IQF fruit so it's individually quick frozen fruit so it's it's been frozen it's it's right. pretty much sterilized for the most part um, it breaks the the membranes of the fruit so it's really juicy I racked uh, racked the sol- sol- uh, solace into the barrel put about fifty pounds of berries in the barrel and then topped up with inoculation inoculation of Britannomyces lambicus, and just bummed it up and let it do its uh, secondary in that. Once the secondary is done, I came back and dolloped it with Lactobacillus brevis, and just put it away for about two years. And so we've been tasting through the barrels, and what you're tasting tonight is something. It's a it's an individual barrel that's just been you know culturing itself, and it's uh it's really an enigma to have like individual barrels showing up like this. And it's not a blend of anything. It's just a it's one. one it's, it's one barrel. Wow, that's yeah. So we're hoping to, to, to move um, into mass production of this, not mass production, but right. a, a larger volume of production. But the, the way we did this beer is very unique probably to this, what you're drinking tonight. Oh, yeah, definitely. So let me ask you this. Did you, how did you start brewing? Uh, I was home brewing during my college years up in, uh, in Slow. Uh, became quite uh, amazed by the idea of, the you know, doing it science-wise, using natural, my, I was using fruit in the natural uh, vicinity of slows for a ton of fruit trees, berries. Um, so I got really interested in that for a while. Then I moved into using a science degree. I was going to school for uh, getting a food science degree. Uh, I wanted to pair that with culinary degree. I was working in kitchens, kind of support myself through uh, college. 
And by the time I was about a year out of college, I realized that I, w- I was missing brewing. And so uh, in, a, in kind of a, a exodus from, from my culinary uh, road I was on, moved back down the slow, went out to dinner with a professor that I, microbiology that I studied with, and then that night, the owner of the brew, the brew pub that we were at walked up to the table, knowing quite well that my uh, professor was microbiology, uh, knew what he was talking about, and asked him if uh, he knew a microbiologist. And my professor, Brian Hampson, pointed across the table and said, this is the guy. I walked into the, the main brewery that the, the man owned, which was Slow Brewing Company, uh, on Monday, and he, he, he asked me five very distinct words that I've heard a couple times now in my career, which is, do you want the job? <laughs> I think that's four words. Do you want the job? Yeah. And uh, I took the option to, to take it, and uh, from that point on, really haven't looked back. Um, Slow Brew was uh, handed off to Firestone Walker in about 2001. I've been working with Matt Reynoldson for about 12 years, and from that point on, it was just a, it was a match. And so let me ask you this. If you are... Would- if you had any advice to talk to, to give to home brewers that are brewing sour beers, what would it be? I would say just be honest with yourselves. Um, don't push things too quickly. Uh, most people are, they know what they're doing. I think they know what they want out of a beer, but maybe become a little bit antsy and, and waiting for something to happen when it's not happening. If you can control temperature, it's ideal. Um, Sanitation is obviously a must as well because you don't want to second guess what happened. But don't put something out that you're not comfortable with, and don't try to try to force it. It's it's all about time, and it's all about putting something like your best foot forward. Obviously. Well, thank you very much. Your beers are absolutely amazing. I appreciate so, it. Cheers. Thank you. I'm super inspired by all these interviews. I hope you are, too. Thank you for listening to Foment About It. We'll be back next Monday, 7 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Foment About It. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.